Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I'm the director and owner of Snow Pro Ski School based here in a snowy Val d'Illier in Switzerland. Um, I'm looking out onto the Don du Midi at the moment and uh, they're covered in snow. The snow is down, down to about well, at least, well, it looks like 2,000, 1,800 meters, something like that. And um, I've been skiing yesterday actually. I went to went over to Glacier 3000 um in Le Diablore, uh, which just opened on the weekend and um the terrain there is excellent for sort of early season skiing it's not too steep you can kind of you know lay your skis over on nice grippy glacier snow and it's quite confidence inspiring it's a really nice place to go early in the season and get you know get all your movements in order without it being too um how would you say like too you know things happening too fast too quickly it's like a it's a it's a it's a nice sort of gradual build up um towards getting getting your skiing in order so that you arrive at the season really really well so um so i had a lovely day up there yesterday and i'm probably going to go up there tomorrow with my daughter have a little bit of a ski about get her going and uh, and then and then i'll go again and sort of gradually ramp up what i'm looking to do um uh, for this autumn, which should be really cool. I've got um, a new pair of skis to test, which I managed to get from um, one of the junior racers that I know, which is a nice, nice looking anyway, um, 180 centimeter. Um, it's like a 20, 20 or 21 meter radius ski. So uh, it's a Fisher RC4 something or other. Um, so we're gonna test that out, see see how that turns, see what the, um, you know, see whether, see whether that might be the ski that I've been looking for for a long time. It's sort of, you know, fairly easy going GS ski um, yesterday I skied the um, I think it was the Castley MX 74 in 180 which is about a, I think it's about a 16 or 18 meter rad I can't, can't remember what it is but um, it felt very very nice on the on the glacier um, it's just a little bit wide underfoot at 74 for what for what I like to do um, so uh, here we are episode 39 um, this one is going to be a two-parter so 39 is going to be part one 40 is going to be uh, part two and this is with John Arlson um, of New Generation Ski School in Verbier um, John you will remember works quite closely with Tom Waddington and they both run a sort of high level uh, you might call it a gap program but a sort of performance training for those aiming for the higher levels of certification in kind of any system really um and i sat down with john expecting an interview you know it's a fairly standard one but in, in in the end there's like two and a half hours worth of chat here and we just sat and talked and talked and we got on super well and the the way that john is is that he seems to be quite a deep deep thinker on on all things skiing and in life in general and we really um yeah we really went deeply into a whole bunch of stuff and a lot of them not not very ski related so um in this episode you'll you'll hear a bit about sort of glacier summer skiing um i recorded this in september so we'd just come back from uh, from the zermatt glacier um we talk a lot about corporate life versus ski life um there's even a bit about sort of fashion in there weirdly and uh, and also his journey towards kind of where he is now um and uh, I, it's not often during the editing process that I sit there and I listen to the interview that well. I kind of skip through it. But this one, I found myself kind of sitting there and, and, and um, being quite engaged with it. So, uh, so it gives you, gives you an idea of the kind of 
um, kind of episode it's going to be. I, I really, really enjoyed, um, really enjoyed making it. Um, I've had some, so there's going to be no me in the middle of this one. It's just going to be this bit and then uh, and then straight through. So um, I've got a couple of people that wrote to me. I thought I'd read them out just because it's lovely to receive correspondence from people. It kind of uh, keeps me motivated to do this but secondly I'm, I'm also it's just lovely to hear from people and know that they're listening so um this one is from susan schaefer hi susan um it says hi dave i just wanted to tell you how much i enjoyed your interview with dan egan um being in the u.s it's always great to hear an interview with someone on this side of the pond um however i truly find all of your interviews very interesting and learn something from each and every person you interview so thank you very much uh, i think she goes on to say I think your podcast is quite unique and beneficial. I'm happy to discover those I've had instruction from all have similar philosophies like yours and Dan's and others. Um, I hope this is a great season for you. Thanks again for your podcast. Um, thank you so much. Uh, such a nice email. I had some further correspondence with Susan and, and she suggested some some more people stateside that I, I should try and get in touch with. So, uh, so I really, really appreciate that. Um, I also had... Uh, I also had this was a this was a strange one. I'll read this out. Um, but there was a guy who contacted me called God, and he has made a game, like a like an app, a game on an app. I'm not really. Um, you can tell already that I'm not a, um, a gamer. Um, but he made an app called the Ski Instructor of Doom. And actually, I did take the time to play it, and actually, it's really funny. Um, so, uh, yeah, so he wrote to me and said, hey, not sure you would even laugh at this, but we launched it a couple of days ago, and it's actually quite funny. So you play the role of, a, like, a ski instructor. Um, I'd say it's like a, uh, if you've seen Aspen Extreme or Hot Dog, you know, like, it, it's uh, it's that kind of thing. So um, very much enjoyed that, and thank you very much um, for sending that to me, uh, God. I really appreciate it. If anyone wants uh, that, he sent me a few... Um, I don't know. I think you just look under like Play Store or wherever you get your games and you look up uh, Ski Instructor of Doom. So, um, and he goes on to say, uh, please keep the metal side down. Have a good season. Um, I can't promise you that I'll keep the metal side down, but I will do my best guard. So thank you very much for that. Uh, that was awesome. Um, anyway, without further ado, I will uh, get on with this episode and um, and I'll try and get... Uh, part two of this podcast launched as soon as I can. Um, so wherever you are, I hope you're skiing already and uh, I will catch you on the next one. John Olson, welcome to the Ski Instructor Podcast. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, you? I'm all right. Yeah, I'm all right. I've been greeted by your dog. Yeah, brilliant dog. Brilliant dog. Yes. They're hard work at eighteen yeah, months. It gets absolutely. easier. <laughs> one, one hopes. One hopes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you have just returned back from. You were in. Were you skiing out of Zermatt or were you skiing out of Chivinia? Chivinia. Okay, yeah. and you were doing the uh, the. Uh, Presumably, must have been the level two exam for the snow works. Yes. Okay. Exactly. I saw those guys. Yeah. So I saw those guys literally on the first day that they came out of the quarantine because we were in the same hotel. Oh, okay. With a camp of yeah. kids, so they must have done what eight weeks. It must have been 
seven weeks they ago. do yeah yeah they were unfortunate though poor guys that you know with a bad summer they had so well the, the, the week we were there we got up once out of five days yeah they and they, they were like in despair because they they were they were like uh, they were a week away from the level one exam yeah, no, I'm on the, about level, it. on the level one, yeah. Monday through Friday, the mountain was shut. No. Yeah. Which is the level one, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think they ended up skiing one day on the Saturday, so they did like as much off snow stuff they could. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, the summer after that hasn't been good either. So they had a lot of, I think, I think Lee said 50%. No, uh, serious. Roughly. We, we were quite lucky. We had two shut days out of ten. So, you know, you can work uh, around yeah. that. But, uh, oh, wow. Because we were just talking about this on the way in, weren't we? There has been the Swiss summer. You can't even call it a summer, really. Not really, like, no. We're, I mean, where we live, you can normally see the Don de Midi all, all summer. They're beautiful. And yeah. it's just been a cloud over them all summer. Same where the combat's here. Yeah. Like, Today it's beautiful. is it's unusual. Uh, yeah. I was just saying to because we had guests from Austria this weekend. And yeah. Just said like we haven't seen it this summer, especially it's the Grokomba at the back. So that yeah. one at the back, the, the white one. Yeah. The white one, listener. Yeah. The one that's covered in snow. <laughs> yeah. That so you can see that from the other side. So when you're driving from Villeneuve down to Monte, which I do a lot yeah. in the autumn, you, you can see the Grand Combat all the time. Yeah. So that's it from this side. Yeah, and the actual summit is, uh, I believe, is a little bit behind the... And that's like 4,034 or something. 4,334, it? it's a big one. Yeah, it's pretty high. Big yeah. one. Amazing. Yeah, but they've just been uh, like this. Even on a sunny day, there's always been a local cloud because it's uh, yeah. rained so much. It's always moisture. Yeah. And, uh, so you get these local yeah. uh, clouds. Yeah. I'm going to add the Grand Combo to my list of mountains that I know. Yeah. I'm going to uh, point out, because if I don't know them, I just call them the Don du Chat. Yeah. And then in front, you have yeah. the, so you have the Panossier in the middle and then the, I think it's called. Okay. I hope it is. It's good enough for me. Ten. And then in, to the right of that, you have the Petit Combo. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. And yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, it's not a bad view for a breakfast. It's not bad, is it? No. All the people in skiing all have a lovely view. This yeah. is the, what I've noticed. From, yeah. From. <laughs> and um, no, but what we were saying is that that there's been, and it's I think even down at like lake level or in the valley, yeah. there's been a cold wind all yeah. summer that has yeah. not gone away at all, no. has it? No. It's been really, really. Um, I mean, luckily, Verbi is not a particularly windy place in the village. Yeah. Uh, it's actually windier down in the shop, typically, yeah. I find. Certainly, if you go down to Martinique. Oh, Martinique. But, uh, so it's all right, and this balcony is pretty sheltered. So mm. We've had some heat on the balcony, but other than that, it's, yeah. it's been uh, pretty sad. Yeah. Pretty sad. I'm predicting a very lovely Indian summer for September. Yeah, well. I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I think. But then uh, you know, we were talk- I was talking to this uh, friend from Austria who's here now at the weekend, and he mm. said that's probably what a European summer should be. Ah. We were getting more used to the, the heated summers of climate yeah. change and stuff. Um, so this is like a normal. Yeah, probably mm. more what it's normal be. alpine summer. That's interesting. 
I don't know if that's true, but uh, he, it could he, be. He's thinking that this, this is a, 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 what would you say, like a reversion to the norm, or that this is how it's going to be? No, he's saying that this is more like they used to be okay. um, than what we've had the last years. I'm fine with that, by the way, if it yeah. carries on like this, because I don't like it hot at all. No, I was also saying to... To Johanna, maybe by the time uh, it's time to retire, Sweden has a nice climate. We can go up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Everyone will be moving north. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be, yeah. Uh, the Brits will go to Sweden to oh. retire instead of oh, Spain. No. Well, yeah. They're not allowed in Spain anymore, anyway. No. But the, the, I don't know how they live down there. It's 45 degrees in the summer. Like my my wife is Romanian and mm. she was talking to her aunt. She said they've had yeah. They said in Bucharest they said they've had forty two weeks of forty two degrees in the city. In the city as well. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I spent spent quite a bit of time in conference rooms in Bucharest in a previous <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we need to talk about that. But let's first talk about you. Um, uh, the summer skiing in Chivinia. Yeah. So. I'm due to go to Sasfay either tomorrow or Friday with Shambles. Uh, hi, Shambles, if you're listening. And he, the best thing, I think the best thing, I mean, I'm, I go really just to kind of get my skiing in tune. Mm. And, and if I go tomorrow or Friday, I'll spend most of my time doing slow, basic parallel turns just to try and get that feeling back. Yeah. And then gradually ramp up my skiing towards November. Yeah. So that might look reasonably yeah. competent. Present, presentable for <laughs> clients. Yeah. Yeah. But the best thing about summer skiing, I think, is to see like all the races up there. Yeah. And every now and then you get to see a World Cupper. You get yeah. to see certainly A-teamers, B-teamers, and then you see some very high-level kids. Yeah. Kids, fist kids, you know, like yeah, fisting the level below. Kids. Yeah. And, awesome. and, children yeah and what always amazes me I mean one it's lovely to watch because mm. they're all really competent yeah but secondly there's something about the way that they ski about how their skis the connection between the snow and the ski yeah. like it's like a sort of extra there's another level of precision of movement yeah, yeah. that, that is just out of this world <clears throat> it's lovely it was really yeah. inspiring I think yeah it's like watching a pro golfer or something you know, like the way they, yeah. they, I'm sure I've talked about this before in the podcast, like the way that they connect with the ball is different. different. Sound. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly that. Yeah. It's a different sound, the snow and the ski. Which I don't know about because I don't play golf, but I used to play baseball. And mm-hmm. it's like oh, the way you, you connect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. It's, um, it's like a magic show. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's just almost no apparent movements <clears throat> other than, some edging but not like not anything extreme hmm. and the way they bend the ski is just yeah with such little edge an- angle yeah i remember the first you know we arrived monday morning we meet the groups we go up the t-bar on the zermatt glacier and this guy's coming down and it, you know it's good like it's apparently very good so i'm watching and i'm thinking that he's on a slalom ski and then as he comes closer it's like he's on a 30 meter <laughs> yeah and he's and, making and those turns and it's oh, the, like the yeah. radius is so short and it's not like he's cranking any angles no. it's 
like the hip is like a meter off the snow. Yeah. Uh, there's no knuckle dragging or anything. Yeah. Just, but just yeah. on the ski. Hmm. Ah, was, I don't know. What do you? It, it's inspiring and yeah. it's also like it's almost uninspiring. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Because you know we're all decent skiers at different levels, but it's just yeah, the way they perfected those movement patterns is just. And I guess it's just then, like Ed Drake said this. He said, "There's no shortcut to get to there. No, like, it's just endless mm. repetition of that movement and other ones that go with it. But eventually, I guess you come to an understanding to how to get a big stiff ski like that to turn. Yeah, more than it wants to turn. Yeah, uh, and I think um, there's obviously physicality." to it yeah um, they're strong they're very strong power yeah. to weight ratios but I think it's they're like very well connected to the sole of their foot mm. like that's where they balance they feel where that is so they 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 can be so precise it's I don't know but it looks to me like it's much less than a degree mm. like they are exactly where they need to be mm. for the turn they're looking to make and you know they're not looking to impress anyone when they're skiing down like that they're just warming up or yeah or like focus on themselves they're not like trying to be a ski instructor showing off to because mm. they don't care yeah uh, they're just looking to be where they need to be and um, how precise they can be that is absolutely astonishing no. It is. It's it's uh, yeah. yeah. It's so much fun to be a fanboy up there. Just watching. <laughs> oh, that's Vincent Kriegmeier. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's and then you end up talking to the group a little bit more than I like, just so that you're still there when he starts to ski, so you can get to watch him ski. Yeah, yeah, times. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did they? Did your group? Are they? I mean, they were. I saw them. So they were just starting out on their journey. Yeah. Um towards wherever they're going to end up or maybe yeah. they won't you know it's a gap course so maybe they're just doing it for fun or whatever um did, did are they able were they able to have any kind of appreciation for for what they were seeing or is it too soon uh, because you and i sit there over yeah. the ski nerds and we, we yeah. can sit there and go wow that guy's amazing we saw i mean on the glacier we saw frederica brignoni up yeah. there and um i was trying to say to the the, the kids we were up there with look that is the best female skier in the world. Yeah. Like right there next yeah. to you. Yeah. You can't see it, you know, you don't see what you see, but she was practicing slow. Yeah. Zero speed parallel. Yeah. It wasn't zero speed, you know, yeah. like slow, basic yeah. parallel turns on a pair of slalom skis. I'm like, guys, it's good enough for her. Yeah. It's good enough for you. You know, we're just getting used to skiing again after after three or four months off, you know. And you're sitting there just going, Wow. You know, yeah. That that's like the best female skier in the world. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Next to me. Yeah. You couldn't get it. Like if you're in a different sport, yeah. let's say you were into, I don't know, go-karting or something. Yeah. You would never be able to get that close to like Lewis Hamilton or something like that. You'd never see him. No, yeah. certainly not so get on accessible. a with them. Because they, yeah. t- they tend to, you know, they have their own program. Mm. You know, you see one guy might be skiing stubbies and another guy on the same team he's off doing some drills mm. by himself so 
and they're quite long queues when we were up there hmm. yeah especially the first week and so you know they'd go through the turnstiles but then they'd slide all the racers would like slide out to the side and hmm. get on when there was an empty yeah. slot available on a yeah. table so you know they'd getting on with kids they'd be getting on with whoever yeah. was, was by himself on the t-bar so um yeah i mean if you know who you're <laughs> talking to you might yeah. you might get quite blown away yeah by, by who yeah, you're next yeah. to but i think it's also you realize how much they work on where the hip is ah go on no, but like all, like almost all drills. They're like they're holding yeah. their hips. Yeah, yeah. They got the poles on their hips. They're, the and it's just I think it's just lining themselves up so that they can balance with precision and like biomechanical strength. You know, bit mm. of skeletal structure, good strong muscles to be able to deal with load and and that kind of thing. And it's. To me, it seemed like a lot of focus on where the hip is in the work phase. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in relation to the feet. And then obviously, they're going quite slow, so the hip's quite up high and off yeah. the ground and all of that. But you can just imagine they go faster and then they tilt it into mm-hmm. the turn and not so much difference in the fore and aft where it is in the work phase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that to me seemed to be what most of the people who were there then mm. anyway were working on just stacking themselves do you think that that's what they work on in the early season to find like a sort of a centre I suppose they don't really have an off season they might have a month off maybe go to the yeah beach. I think uh, but Tom got on the lift with one of the Swiss coaches and they had seemed like they I hope I'm not div- divulging any uh, secrets here now but he told Tom so it's <laughs> out anyway yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, Tom Wallington that is uh, yeah yeah hi Tom if you're friend, listening friend and colleague um, uh, that they had decreased the amount of time on snow oh yeah and uh, much more dry land fitness um, that kind of thing at the expense of turns that's interesting but I think you know you probably have to look at the people in front of you if they've been on the World Cup for a few years mm. if they've got good fundamentals maybe power and agility and mobility mm. pays off more and maybe you get less wear and tear on the body that way and all of this that stuff uh, yeah I think someone I was speaking to Phil Brown about this so up there with Phil on his camp and um, he he was saying towards the end of his career, he was saying the same with Marcel Hirsch, who just spent the entire summer, you know, riding dirt bikes and doing dry land training yeah. and stuff. And eventually, when he felt like it, yeah. I'm about to say similar to what I'm trying to do, because <laughs> I don't really yeah. want to go back on snow yet. I just don't feel ready. Like, I haven't got yeah. the hunger for it, but I will in September. Yeah. Um, and I started, I did the same thing. So what I used to do back in the, um, in the last few years, I'd start in July, and that'd be my thing. Right, my I would ski from July to yeah April, so and I'd have May June yeah. off, but I would be on snow for ten months of the year, not working, yeah, but just because it for me skiing is not natural. 
Yeah. And so I have to kind of keep in tune. You came in, into a bit yeah. uh, later in I life. We'll probably I come to that one yeah. because maybe we had a similar journey a little bit yeah. or we took time away from it. Yeah. But the the bit for me is that actually now I don't want to do that. So my, I'm trying to listen to my body a bit. My mm. body says like, no, that's a bit too much. Let's start in September. Yeah. Let's not go up there in, in, in July and August when it's crowded and full of races and just trying yeah. to elbow little... You know, you're getting yeah. pushed in front of and that. So let's go up in September, there's no one there. And go September to April, call it eight months of skiing and then have, you know, four months off in the middle, go ride bikes or whatever. Yeah. You know? So yeah. I don't know, like that That for me, I suppose if you've got a, a built-in movement pattern and you're skiing at a really high level, you can afford to take, you know, yeah. it's not like you're going to lose it, especially no. if you've been skiing since you were six. Yeah. Right? You no, know, you ski. The precision, a little timing. Yeah, that you that will be off. Yeah. At, after a break. Yeah. That comes back quicker. That you probably. Does it come no, back it, for you straight away? It's pretty quick now. Yeah. 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 Do you have like certain shortcuts that gets you back like into tune quick? Because I'm starting to think that a day, like I said to you, that a day just doing basic parallel. That that's one of my shortcuts. Like don't don't you know? I don't even put the the skis on an edge to carve them yeah. until two or three sessions in. If I spend my time just doing slow speed, basic you know one foot um, drills, like that gets me into tune real quick, and then yeah. I can find my balance again. I think you know Tom and I spend quite a bit of time doing proper fundamentals in the winter. Hmm. Um, with our trainees, uh, they do about two weeks, which means Tom and I do three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've gotten pretty good at that slow stuff. So it doesn't take me a long time to get into into it anymore. When do you start doing all of that stuff? Do you go up here in December? Yeah. Normally, I don't ski in the summer now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I, when I first started, I always went to New Zealand and taught down there in the uh, southern winter. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of skiing for for the first, I was there, six years. Okay. Uh, so then you don't get much of a break. Uh, yeah. But then uh, I had a really bad back for a couple of years. Well, so tell me about that because I've got a bad back right now <laughs> yeah uh, I was take, it took four years pretty much where did you hurt here? Uh, down here L5 uh, L1 well I've, I've had a fracture L5. up higher here right. um, in the past and but this it just it would not accept any load uh, down here where it meets the pelvis yeah yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, the the skiers classic. Yeah, uh, so yeah, like I just could not go to New Zealand and do a billion short turns on hard snow down there. So I stopped, and then um, we didn't have a summer like this. We had a nice summer, and I thought summers are good. Yeah. So I um, so we and Johanna, my partner, wasn't that keen on going back either. Is sort of a Basically, uh, a nomad life. It's nomad, but it's also like you 
basically break even because hmm. yeah, you don't make any money down there compared to up here hmm. and uh, you know she's uh, she's been a ski instructor for a very long time so yeah it didn't make sense to do you work together yeah uh, different schools she works for performance, yes, performance. okay yeah. oh cool yeah I saw him the other day hello Toby uh, yeah hi Tobes the um, the thing about that I see it often here is you get and I see, I'm, I'm desperately hoping that it's not going to happen to certain ones of my team because yeah. I don't really want to lose them. But you see it all the time. Go, guys and girls, they arrive at like late 20s, yeah. 30s. And there's only so long that you can spend going backwards and forwards to where you live and then come out and do a season and then come back yeah. and you've either got to make the decision to stay out here full time yeah. and make a life out here yeah. or go home and get a real yeah. job and uh makes me sad when that happens see you lose a lot of talent out of the industry yeah. it's a shame that the um the industry doesn't have the capability to pay better or make an annual living out of it I mean it can do but yeah. only for a few people, and yeah. it's not going to make fortunes compared to what what no, no. people in offices can can no. make out here. That's for sure. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. That's not why you do it, though. It's not really. Let's talk about that because yeah. you, in a previous life, you um, you you were a lawyer. Yeah. Feels pretty distant now. I can imagine. Was that seven years of training? Uh, well, I, I, in Sweden, the law degree as such is four and a half, but okay. I studied Russian and some other stuff, so I, I was at uni for seven years. You speak yeah. Russian? Nimloaga. Wow. Well, it's been, it's been a while now, you know, languages are like fruit, yeah, best used fresh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not, it's not very good now. It's impressive, though. Um... Wow. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I I started out studying Russian and then uh, I thought, I don't want to be a language teacher. Mm. Uh, and I got into law school and did well there. So I got a, got a job at a big corporate firm and that kind of life. Mm-hmm. Got recruited to St. Petersburg in Russia out of law school for a Swedish firm. They had an office there. Wow. Um, so were you working in Russian? Uh, we weren't. It was uh, basically representing Swedish clients and their interests in Russia. Okay. Uh, and uh, but there's some pretty technical Russian language and and technical work. Yeah. So so. It's impressive. We we basically worked in English though. Um, we yeah. had we had it's a small office back then. Uh, this was me and the partner at the office he was Swedish and then mm-hmm. three Russian lawyers okay um, so yeah pretty small operations there but uh, the law law firm now I don't know it's got like four or five hundred lawyers it's quite a big like New York Brussels Stockholm yeah, yeah. Okay. Shanghai and that kind of thing Uh so so I was, but I was only there for a year, uh, and then that was kind of the idea that uh, you know, 
they didn't want young associates in Russia for too long because it's a weird place and you get like a weird impression potentially of, of what life at this conservative law firm actually was about. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <You know>? uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, uh, so I went back to Sweden, uh, to Stockholm and yeah. worked the first uh, the district court for a year and a half like a common thing to do in Sweden mm-hmm. uh, and then back to the law firm. Were you working, presumably it wasn't criminal law, it was no, corporate uh, law? No, mergers and acquisitions. Okay. Pretty much basically helping clients buy or sell mm-hmm. companies or businesses, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and how that. long did you do that for? So I was with the law firm from 2001 to 2007 and then I left the law firm and worked for like a little boutique private equity firm based in Brussels until the end of 2009. And since I've been basically instructed, so about nine years. Okay. I was doing that. And before that, so before you went to university, mm. you were skiing when you grew up? Yep. You were a lot. racing a bit? Quite a lot. Yeah? Yeah. Skiing a lot when you grew up? Yeah. Are you from Stockholm though? Yes. So every day you would, um, every weekend, I guess, you would travel there? Uh, so we, in Stockholm, you, you have tons of little hills. Yeah. Um, and when you're a kid, they're absolutely sufficient. Yeah. Like, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 second slaloms. Okay. 15, 20 second GSs. So it's a bit is, like the dry slope skiing scene in the UK. Yeah, but... But with real snow. Yeah, I realize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The houses came out. So, but it's so quite, quite a common thing um, uh, in Sweden. Like Matthias Hargen is from Stockholm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Penilla Wiberg was from a small hill further south. And uh, Andre Mears from. So, like, uh, it's quite, quite a normal thing for racers to. Uh, you know, I didn't get good, but uh, mm. you can get good uh, even on those little hills. Yeah. So, so I actually, from when I was in school, my brother raced as well and he's a year older, so we were often in like different groups, uh, mm. which meant like I, let's say I had training Monday, Wednesday, he would have training Tuesday, Thursday mm-hmm. in the evenings after school. Yeah. So I'd be on the hill four days a week and then races on the weekends. So wow. It was like, that was my sport when I was Yeah. Little. Okay. Yeah. I carried on. Uh, I never got really serious with the dry land. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to ski. Um, so I did my like last race when I was seventeen or something. Okay. Yeah. And then I did some races after that, but I stopped going like only for fun. Yeah. yeah. Life took you in a slightly different direction. Yeah. So no yeah. no turns between ninety four and two thousand four. Wow. I prototyped the first Elan because uh, I was actually I did half a season working uh, teaching skiing in Sweden mm-hmm. in 94 and um, they'd just come out but I didn't it didn't, didn't impress me it just seemed like a Rizla paper or something very soft that's interesting uh, we'll come back to that and then yeah. um, <laughs> and then yeah and then started skiing again in 2004 yeah. On holidays. 
just as a little aside, what's your, do you prefer a longer or a shorter ski these days? Uh, all of them actually. Yeah. Um, so I typically have a 30 meter radius slalom ski that I don't use much. Right. And then I have the classical tech ski in 18 meter radius oh. that I use most of the time. Which one is that? What do you use? Uh, they don't sponsor me, so I won't say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hear that. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, and then uh, I have now a one eighty two twenty five meter GS ski that I really enjoy skiing on as well. One eighty two. Yeah, one eighty two twenty five meter rated. Could be one eighty three, but I think one eighty two. So mm. like, um, what like the. 14 year olds I guess something like yeah, that yeah. Ski on. I'm going to go back to that this year I it think. is is really nice because it's, it's much softer than the other two skis yeah it's got a bit of a piece like a like a tip rocker so it picks up pretty quickly you yeah. have to like to do a good long turns you have to go quite fast on them but yeah short turns central theme like the beginner progressions and that love doing that stuff on on the that ski Whereas I don't like doing any of that on a slalom ski. Uh, right. For me, the slalom ski is only fun to carve aggressive, like sh- quite short radius. Too times. lively for me. They, Maybe they, I'm just getting old. They do. Yeah. You, you tend to come back with sore hip sockets after a day on the slalom <laughs> yeah. ski. Yeah. I can't afford that. There's a lot of, <laughs> lot of force going up through. No, nah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. So that's. Uh, and I, I like to yeah. vary a bit, but I end up skiing mainly on the on the 18s I would say yeah. yeah okay yeah I'm torn between the two this year I'm going to go back to uh, I also like ch- swapping though because it keeps you on your toes to go from a 13 to 25 yeah is good for you exactly stop you just leaning in yeah 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 totally agree totally agree yeah the um, yeah you've got to set up properly a long, longer ski yeah. Otherwise, you you end up. But you have to balance. You can't rely on the ski to balance for you. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And that's hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I mean, it's a very narrow edge, and you got to move <laughs> in such a way that you're on that narrow edge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. I agree. Right, let's jump back over here. So you did this sort of corporate existence for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Some days, I'm not saying every day, but some days, I often think back fondly to those days that I used to spend yeah. putting on a decent suit, nice tie, yeah. decent pair of shoes. Still got those Savile Row suits somewhere in my mother's. I actually have to take them out because <laughs> Alessandro's getting married this weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's actually quite funny when I... I heard about well, it stag do. Yeah, you all went to Italy. I, yeah, yeah, I was not there actually. Um, <laughs> but um, I stored my suits uh, at my dad's. Mm. And my dad, he had a interesting life. He, he he spent a lot of time in Africa as a like a freelance journalist in the sixties. Oh, wow! So yeah, always had a special place in his heart for for uh, Africa and. Africans and he met this. Uh, we lived in a small. They'd moved to a small town. Mm. Uh, and he met this African refugee, and you know, I guess 
took it, I don't know, he felt sorry for him or wanted to help him out. So he gave him all of my fancy suits. No and I was like, <laughs> so there's a, like, didn't even ask. So there's some dude in Africa tooling around <laughs> in that Savile Row suit. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's, um, so I managed to retrieve two suits. So okay. I, so I have two suits left now. <laughs> and uh, I had to dig them out now. Do they Just, still fit? Yes. Because I went incredible. back to my place and I, I tried on these old Savile Row suits and I had, and they're, they're big. I'm like, I yeah. used to be a lot fatter. I Back in the day, was quite lean uh, when I was a lawyer. I'm yeah. heavier now than I was. Okay, so I had another one made in Geneva. So I've got one suit that is that is like it's like my one smart outfit that I've got. Yeah. So if we go to the opera or something in Geneva, um, I'll put that on. Yeah. You know, even though I don't have to, but it's nice. It's nice to dress up sometimes. That's the thing about the ski industry. It's so damn scruffy. It is scruffy. You know, I don't know. That feels like home base for me, anyway. Yeah, I always felt a little bit like a stranger in suits. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Turns out that wasn't. Yeah, that wasn't really me. Fair and I, I would always, you know, if I went out on the weekends, I'd usually, especially if you live in Stockholm, you have to dress up. Or mm. they, nobody lets you. Smart there. Yeah. Uh, Brussels is a bit more uh, relaxed. Uh, so in the beginning, I, th- I sort of transitioned back to who I was after a while in Brussels. I'd go out in a hoodie and a cap. Yeah. I always wear a cap. Always have. Even before I was bald. But now it's, it's just... <laughs> it keeps really, you warm, right? Really cold, man. You don't have any hair. <laughs> yeah. I've been wearing this one for about a year now. And my wife hates it. Yeah. She's like, you are too old to be wearing a cap like that. Like, I probably am, but... Until the next round of merch happens. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that hat. Good looking hat. I think what I'm trying to do is dress too young. And I just dress like I'm dressed like... Uh, I always mean, yeah, like, dre- oh, dress like this. So. I don't know. I, I, I kind of miss ski season. I like the idea that like you just wear the same thing every day. Yeah. Like In like, a way... <laughs> for four months. Yeah. <laughs> Take, takes a bit of time before you realise that there's a difference. Like when you start in a office. Yeah. All suits look the same. Like every yeah, yeah. But then it's after true. a while, it's like, oh, that's a nice suit. That's yeah. a nice suit. You but start then, to know. Then you realize, look, you only see the difference because you spend a lot of time around them. Mm-hmm. Like a year ago, they all looked the same. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, that's true. Maybe, that's maybe true. there's not such great value to, to that, even though it might make you feel. It's a bit more of an achievement, isn't it, to have your first tailor-made suit? Mm. it's like you're yeah you feel like you've arrived at yeah, all yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm with you yeah, the whole process is amazing this is a proper tangent away from skiing yeah. I love these <laughs> tangents but the like the, the whole process of going and getting a suit made if you've never done it and you're in the market for a suit you should just go and do it it's not that much more expensive than just going and buying an off the rack one depends on the, the fabric and, you go for yeah, I guess depends who you go to I suppose but yeah they, too, but, but um, like it's just a nice process yeah, you know, like to have something that's properly made for you is, and then you get your little name sewn yeah. into the to the thing, the buttons that open, like, you know, the yeah. little touches that you yeah. wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't get. You have the lining, but it's like you have you to be part of that club to see it in another. Yeah, suit. yeah, and yeah, I don't know. I never valued it when I was 
there I thought I valued it quite highly. Mm -hmm. And when I left, I missed none of it. Yeah. And then it turns out it had no real value to you. Let me tell you, let me ask you about one of the things that I've been reflecting on lately, which, which is or isn't, I don't know, it might be a thing, might not be a thing. One of the things that I see around me all the time is people who work for a lot of the corporations down mm -hmm. that way by the lake. They're all earning a fortune. Yeah. A lot of them are earning a fortune. Yeah. Even people that, the, I don't know what's happened to salary price inflation, but a lot of people are earning a lot of money in jobs that, like are, that aren't really that technical, no. that aren't really that... Um, you know, with, with a law degree, for example, you could probably go and get an extremely high-paying job down in Geneva, no problem, especially speaking Russian. Right? Yeah. Probably. Do you... We've both chosen a different yeah. life, and I, I don't know what your reasons are for the life that you've chosen. I One of the reasons that I've chosen the life that I've chosen is because I don't like pe people telling me what to do. Yeah. Can't handle that. Yeah. So I have to work for myself. I don't have any other option. Okay. One of the other options is I really like the idea that it's me versus the market. Yeah. As in, no one's going to pay me a living unless I hustle. Yeah. Sometimes that's hard. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of... The other one was, I was thinking on the way here, I'm off to go and interview John. It's Monday morning at 9 a.m. or 9.30 and I'm riding my motorbike through the valleys of yeah. Rivera, right? If I had a real job, yeah. I would have to have been at my desk for a couple of hours by now. But what you don't get with that is you don't get the fat salary and you don't get the, the regular income. No. It kind of comes and goes in bursts. It's just, yeah. a, it's hard sometimes. It's really hard. And it's hard to live in a place like Verbier, I imagine, not without a big budget. It's not easy. What What are your reasons for coming out of that world and being in this world? Because you, you know, yeah, let's just leave the question right Yeah. Um, I, so I grew up skiing and then I, you know, I'm old enough that I was straight skis. Um, and I, I did a half season of teaching. I was meant to go into military service, but they got postponed because of budget cuts. That was mandatory back then. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a year, sort of a gap, un, unscheduled gap year. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I had a friend who worked up uh, north, so he asked for February half term if I could come up and work. And so I did. And... The only thing I enjoyed then, you know, it was fun teaching and all that, but, you know, there's a bit of time to free ski. And it just wasn't fun. I just went, like, all your life, you be as fast as you can. And when you don't have gates, that means you just go straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you just end up spending all your time on lifts. And I was like, I couldn't see the point to skiing anymore. Yeah, and then so I didn't. I didn't ski. You know, I didn't have any money either because I went to uni, and yeah, yeah. that skiing is expensive. But I went um, in two thousand four. I had a friend who was going on a ski trip to Serre Chevalier hmm. with f three friends, and one got injured just the week before. 
Yeah. And I managed to get the week off. So I went, rented a pair of slalom skis, and I was like, wow, <laughs> 165. You know, what is going on? Just looking at the, you know, normal, you're used to having two meter things on, on your feet, and then now you're looking down, it looks like snow blades. Yeah, yeah. And I did three turns, do, 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 and just got ping, landed yeah. on my back. So this has changed. <laughs> I just thought it was amazing. It's so much fun mm. carving skis. The old skis are fun to go back to, but carving skis is so much more fun. Mm. I mean, there's no comparison. The like the just the joy you can get out of turning mm. uh, on carving skis was just immediate for me then uh, during that ski holiday, and then. It kind of escalated, so I spent all my holiday weeks skiing, more or less. And then your summers suck, because everyone's off having barbecues and going to the beach, and you're stuck in the office because we went skiing. Yeah. And I realized, like, I'm, I'm just spending a lot of money buying skis, because, you know, that's what you do when you're a lawyer, mm -hmm. and, but you can't ski that much, so... Obviously, we wanted to go for a telemark day on one ski holiday. Everyone went to the rental shop. I went and bought boots and bindings and skis because why not yeah uh, and it just didn't like at the same time when I was really gearing up to like starting to realize how much I enjoyed skiing again um, I had started questioning whether I was actually providing any value to the private equity firm I worked for mm -hmm. because you know they were all smart guys and like finance is much more complicated than law in a way mm -hmm. um, so like they could understand the law stuff they might not be good at drafting but you know we always had local law firms so we were based in Brussels but all our investments were in Eastern Europe it's a lot of traveling and, and that kind of thing we would always like if we did a deal in Poland we'd have a Polish law firm and I would talk a lot to them and you know comment on the drafts and stuff but um, I was like I'm pretty sure the other guys could do that so I'm not sure if I'm actually yeah. doing anything of value here. Like, so I start questioning that, and then the financial crisis hit, and there's no, no one doing any deals anymore. Um, this is 2008. Yeah, I know uh, exactly where I was when um, we when closed the deal. Went down. Yeah. We closed the deal on the Friday before yeah. Lehman. Oh yeah. Uh, that weekend it collapsed, you know, and then Monday. Declared. So had we not closed on the Friday afternoon, because we used uh, we yeah. used uh, an international bank for some for some external financing there. I don't I don't think uh, yeah. they would have sent the money, and who knows? But anyway, um, I was on a sun lounger in <laughs> in a villa in Ibiza with all my mates um, uh, at that point, and everyone's phone blew up at the same yeah. time. And I was like, "This yeah. this yeah. is odd." But you know, so so I. I had my job, they liked me, they were not going to fire me or anything, but mm. uh, all of a sudden you have time. Yeah. You know, I yeah, because no I deals are happening, right? All the M&A stuff. You know, this, yeah. like, this, like, you know, I reviewed some lease agreements and stuff, but it's not anything that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And and you have time. Like, I didn't have really 40 hours worth of work in that. Mm. And then you start thinking. So... The thoughts uh, led to me quitting, mm -hmm. and I did a gap course in Whistler. 
Did you plan all of that before you quit? I, yeah. Uh, so, uh, the last, so the thing is a little bit odd because so in 2009 in April I went to Chamonix mm-hmm. and I had a pretty bad crash and like broke some ribs and uh, like a little hairline fracture on a, on a vertebrae. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I thought I better go check see if I still like skiing. So, so you know, when you live in another country, you're not familiar with when the bank holidays are. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden in July at some point there was a bank holiday. So I thought, you know, I'll grab my bike and the skis. I'll go to Teen and see if I like skiing. And I did. So thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to quit. But you got to speak to mom and dad first, right? So I went to Sweden, sat down, arrived, had dinner, uh, and I said, I think I'm going to quit and become a ski instructor. And mom said, yes, you should. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And then I was like, all right, I'll do it. Because, so there's you know, no big pressure in your family to no, be... No, absolutely not. Turn out some hotshot lawyer. No. No? No. They just want you to be happy. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, so no pressure whatsoever in that, but um, and then uh, quit, and they said, I guess this is not something we could throw more money at. And I was like, no, nope. I mean, I think if they had like tripled my salary, maybe I would have reconsidered. But mm. but I also thought this. So I was quite popular at my old law firm, uh, and now I had like in-house experience, which is very valuable to a law firm to have someone mm-hmm. who's been in-house. Uh, so I thought any law firm in Sweden at least will hire me yeah. or I can get pretty senior like in-house legal counsels at big companies in Sweden so I'll lose the job I have now mm-hmm. but if it, if I don't want to do it I can get any job I want yeah I can just come back so there's no risk so you have a safety net yeah there's no risk I thought that's mm-hmm. the analysis I did so I quit but I never really looked back to yeah. be honest Never once did I consider going back. So there you go. Wow. That was the that was that. So that journey then took you so you're in Whistler, you do the gap. Mm-hmm. What Canadian, uh, Canadian yeah. one two. Mm-hmm. I came to Sasfe. I did Warren's gap. Basie one two. Yeah. So I was the weird old guy in my group. But I was Wow. Like, isn't that I funny? Because I was, I was 36. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was, I was slightly different weird because I was a lot better. Because I mm. was, you know, I could ski quite well still. Mm. And, I, and then I looked around the first thing. Because I wasn't really aware of this gap. Because mm. I read, you, know, you need to be able to ski a red run or whatever. I was like, mm. yeah, but they want to be ski instructors, so you have to ski it properly. But that wasn't the case. You don't know that, right? Yeah. No, and I looked around like, why do these guys want to be ski instructors? They're all beginners. They should... Did you have a similar feeling to me? It's like after after about two weeks. Oh god, I sound like such a such a big head. But I got there and I was like, oh. Two weeks in, I was like, oh, I might have wasted my time here because I think I'm already at or near the level for the exam, and now I'm just going to spend seven weeks practicing I, my short turns. Now I wasn't yeah. that good in hindsight, but that seven weeks mm. practicing has paid dividends. Like you know, I thought, well, I'll try and get to the next level. You know, yeah, rather than I had no. Um, as you just spent the time skiing. Yeah, and 
trying to get better and I did go for the Canadian three a couple of weeks after the two. Oh yeah. And I did pass the skiing but failed the teaching. Okay. Uh, it's fine, I'm still two. But uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh so I was I was very, very, very motivated hmm. to get better. Um didn't have like a clear goal of any kind, but because mm-hmm. you started hearing about like four just you know, when you're on a gap course it, just didn't seem like that could ever happen, hmm. but it uh, happened pretty quickly after. So you came back to Europe after that? I Yeah, uh, the plan was always to go to New Zealand after the gap course. So I did, and I had realized that, again, because of the financial crisis, there was no way I was getting a sponsored visa in North America. Yeah. And uh, without any experience. Mm-hmm. Or, and I was too old because I was 36 six when I quit so I was 37 that summer yeah. so I was too old for the working holiday visas okay so then Europe um, and then it didn't really make any sense to carry on in the Canadian so mm-hmm. I did Basie 1 and 2 down in uh, New Zealand with Rookie Academy okay PK was my level 2 examiner oh, what a guy hi so, PK so I've had him what a guy uh, so I've known PK for a long time yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, and then carried on in Basie. Yeah. But I, yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to tell the whole story about the, all the qualifications? No, no. we're just going to skim over it. But eventually, yeah. eventually you've arrived at trainer status for yeah. Basie and uh, NZSIA. Not trainer and uh, NZ. Okay. No. But uh, level NZ, three. Yeah. Level three. So, and, I did the NZ level three because back then you used to be able to, if you were in New Zealand level three, you could get the paton. Okay. And I thought that was, I was always going to do the basic four mm. but, um, to get better hourly rates. Yeah. Uh, and be, back then to be, to be able to teach off piste. Yeah. Um, you needed the paton. And uh, so I did the NZ level three so that I could do the pattern conversion, which I did. Which and is then, here? Yeah, this, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I did it in Zermatt. Okay. okay yeah. uh, and then I think I was the first one where they said the NZ3 wasn't good enough for the pattern. Okay. Uh, even though I passed the, the ski thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I had to wait until I did the base level four. Mm-hmm. But I I stormed. <laughs> I, I had a you know I had a bit of money. I could ski basically when I I have it on good grounds after the Basie two. Rupert Goldring said that I was skiing at a solid level four, mm-hmm. so I just wanted to blast through everything and get the level four. Okay. Um, so I did. So I took uh, nineteen months from level one to finish the four. It's pretty quick. Yeah, I don't think you can do it much quicker. <laughs> I could have been a month quicker if I'd done my written project, not finished on the written project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I, yeah, the first two years were just very intense with, from like 2010 to 2012, just mm. tons of exams. Yeah. Yeah, it feels a bit like that. What, what did it feel like when you popped out the, the, the top of all of that stuff? You know, like the exams stopped. Yeah. It's this odd, I found it quite an odd feeling. Like, I haven't yeah. really got anything to work. 
yeah. what, where I've ended up with that is I haven't really got anything to, to work towards anymore. So I've kind of gone in off in a different direction. Yeah. I'm more into, I like to telemark now. I kind of like, I don't know. I've got, I'm into kind of, I want to say like skiing as, skiing as like art or personal expression rather than mm. skiing as performance. I know that you and Tom are quite into that. You're still quite into the, the, yeah, you know, the, the, Performance. performance side of it I suppose you've got to because that's what sells your, your yeah. product that you offer in the winter it's but, also what I've, yeah. for me that's the most fun to sell yeah. yeah but like within that I I experiment for sure I do mm. uh, with impressions and people you meet and stuff yeah try to take some things on board um, but coming out of it I think I probably felt that I think I was really sick of exams for a while, so I didn't want to do any more. So that that was fine. Um, yeah. Uh, and I had a couple of like two years where I really enjoyed just teaching, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Uh, and then I, I think already like the second season after we we uh, after I finished it. Tom and I managed to convince Nugen to start a gap course here. Mm. I don't know if that's if we managed to convince them or if they. I can't remember. But Tom and I did the first gap course for mm-hmm. Nugen here, um, and we did a week each. I think on the the level four training that they ran before, which is quite different than how we run it now. Mm. Um, so that started pretty early, and I just realized that I enjoyed that more than um, than like regular teaching yeah uh, I'm just not very good at at uh, connecting with people immediately I need a bit more time um, that's fair just enough not everyone's skill. different right and I think like what I'm really interested in is all like a bit more the precision fascinates me, mm-hmm. and with well, how to how to create precision? Yeah, and like where that can go. Whereas with so more like shaping performance. Yeah, well, changing as well, but mm. um, like where you can get someone, um, including myself. But uh, whereas with more with recreational skiers rather than ski instructors, the you never get there because you don't have the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so for me it's more rewarding you know certainly you don't see necessarily like it takes a winter to see the great progression that you can mm-hmm. get in the morning with a complete beginner yeah yeah. yeah. but that process is more uh, is more intriguing to me than, than the one-offs how many of those gap course takers are um, are interested in in as a, as a rough percentage, how many are interested in that uh, sort of concept of, of precision or being really the best that they can be and how many are just there for the, 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 the well, fun season? <laughs> to be mm. fair, I haven't done a gap course because uh, we only do, Tom and I only do the level four training yeah. now or have 
the license. Okay. So inherently, those people they are interested in it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they are very motivated. Mm. Never have to struggle with. on Gap. Is more a for many. It's a long holiday. Yeah. Um, with a bit of structure provided by mm. the Gap coaches, and I'm not very good at that either to be honest because uh, I'm not interested in going out uh, yeah. and drinking beers and all that stuff I, I'm just bad at that I don't have any chats I um, yeah uh, I hear you so all all that ends up if I get cornered by Gap is, is they try to impress me with how interested that they are with skiing so I get to have a lot of like crap chat about um, about skiing when they're not really that interested they just want to be nice to me that's <laughs> fair enough yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know plus you know I'm so much older than they are that uh, it's quite a it's tough to relate <laughs> yeah exactly uh, yeah because I'm 48 right and uh, it's a long time since I was 20 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. or 18 for that matter keeps you keeps you fresh though like I spend a lot of time coaching mm. like kids from the age of I don't know five to 18 or whatever it kind of keeps you honest you Absolutely. know like, that, they, like I'm not saying that it's just that the gappies yeah it's usually a little bit of a different thing because sometimes they're clearly mainly here for the holiday yeah. aspect of the course. Yeah. And because I'm so in, uninterested in that, uh, really struggle to yeah. connect. Uh, I wouldn't have any issues coaching a for, like a keen 14-year-old. Mm. That would be absolutely fine. Yeah. I think. The one that yeah. I'm just not good at pro- necessarily providing the motivation to someone who's not motivated. Mm. If they're motivated, I think I can motivate them well more. Mm. But the, the, to provide the spark, I don't, that's not me. The one that gets me all the time is the this sort of, how would you describe it? This sort of like withering look that you get from like 17 or 18 year olds. Mm. That I coach football season yeah. sometimes. When you've sort of said something deeply tragic or sad because yeah. you're just so old. <laughs> so old. And you're like, they just look at you like, God, you're just such a yeah. sad old man. It's like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. It's an awful yeah. feeling. It's like, oh, yeah. Okay. I've got to remember who I am. I've got to remember yeah. I'm 44 yeah. years old. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, one of you. And, yeah. Uh, but I think for me, as with my trainees, the, they're, they're generally between 20 and 30, like often around 25. Yeah. So they're a bit more mature. But I I don't try to be mates with them. No. I don't go out with them. Uh, I just... I try to keep it professional. And it seems to be better. Tom is much better at yeah. being both. Um, but oh, so that means you're the bad cop. And he's not I, the good cop. certainly used to be. Yeah? But, uh, <laughs> absolutely. I was so hard on people back in the day. Yeah. But I, I think on snow, that that dynamic has actually changed. I think Tom loses his uh, 
is <laughs> quicker than I do nowadays. You know, I just that's one of the things that the biggest change in me is is patient. I'm less stressed mm-hmm. because I know it's a process. I know the process we have works. Now yeah, you just, just wait. It right? takes different amount of time for different people, and. Um, I well, I suppose you're also, you're not under any pressure, right? Like it's the the pressure is on them essentially. So you're the outcome is whatever it is. Yeah, you're, but you're obviously, don't have to be in charge of that. No, I'm not in charge of the outcomes, but I take responsibility for providing them with every. And they are so motivated; they mm-hmm. are trying their very best every day. Um, so for me to to say that I'm not in charge of the outcome is a little bit. Of, I need to at least try to tell them the story they need to hear before they go into the exam. Actually, I need to end the story a little bit earlier so that we can consolidate, mm-hmm. so that they can memorize the story and tell it to the examiner, if you will. Um, and if they're not ready, that's important on me. Yeah. You know, like if they if they're not athletic enough, if they haven't. But everyone, uh, we never have anyone who doesn't mm, mm. like fails to try. So that's not the case. But it is in part on me and Tom. If yeah, you if feel that pressure ready. to prepare them, right? Yeah. But then in the end, yeah. they they're the ones who go to the exam, of yeah. course. But uh, I think I think you have to take some responsibility for how they how they perform because mm-hmm. I mean that's your job to prepare them. Yeah, I understand. Also with the mental aspects of it, which yeah. can be, I think it's much more mental on the full cert uh, exams than it is on the gap course, because they've invested a lot. Of, they've mm-hmm. invested years. They've invested uh, like better part of their like young adulthood into this. Yeah, and they're pretty desperate for it to work out and come out with a pass. So. It is a shame that it just comes down to one week. Or in fact, even less than that in some ways. It's like almost yes two and days, no. isn't it? Yes and no. But for some people, that's too much pressure. It's a shame it couldn't be a continual assessment in some way. Yes and no. I have always come from the other side of that and just said the standard is not that high. Mm-hmm. In, in like, If you look at skiing, you know, from... From complete beginner to the best in the world, mm-hmm. the full cert is much closer to the beginner than it is to the best in the world. So, yeah. So the standard is not impossibly high. Mm-hmm. So probably you should, like I think your worst run should be at the level mm-hmm. then you present yourself yeah. for the exam. Yeah, yeah. If you can't, if if you're not there, so that your worst run is at the level. Um, then that's on you yeah, yeah. That, that's how I've come from it and I personally enjoyed the exams where it was okay here's the run now it's time to do it mm-hmm. but I, I realised that it's a bit unfair because I come from the ski racing background where, where that is how mm. how you perform it's like in the gate go fast if you don't then you suck and go home or yeah. you perform and you're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's just if you're used to that mentally, it's a little bit easier to mm. to get there. But uh, that seems to be a completely different 
culture in the British way of thinking about things. Mm. A, lot of, a lot of people want that um, comfort even during the exam, and I just don't come from that. So for me, it's like, no. Uh, I think that's quite a modern thing, actually. I think it's, it's the way that society yeah. has changed. We're much softer as a society on people now. Yeah, uh, and I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But at some points in life, like stuff is hard. Yeah, <laughs> and shouldn't the exams at some point reflect how life is? Hmm? I don't think there's enough. Actually, personally, I don't think there is enough hardness in life in general for people who are growing up now like it's all a little bit like everyone god I sound like such a such a sort of grumpy old British dude I don't mean to sound like this but like <laughs> but here we go in my old <laughs> yeah in the old days everything was hard and it, it kind of was right you either passed or failed and that was kind of how it is yeah and yeah. every day, now everyone's kind of concerned a little bit with like <sighs> that things aren't too harsh but the reality is, it take, take you back to the days when I was wearing a suit. Mm. The guy would say to you at the start of the year, here is your sales target for the yeah. start of the year. Got That's it. what you got to hit. Yeah, go get it. Meet that. Yeah. Right? And if you don't get it, chances are you'd be fired. Yeah. And you're like, right, I better pick up the phone. Yeah. Here's a stack of leads like this. Don't know any of these people. Get on the phone. Ring them up. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, you know, I'm Dave. That's I'm a job I could never do. <laughs> no, and it's uh, I probably yeah. could still do it. Probably still be paid a fortune for it, but I don't. I still like that. Actually, I like selling stuff to people. It gives yeah. me a big buzz. But the, the, yeah, yeah. I, you've got to. The rejection yeah. isn't. The rejection isn't to you personally. They just don't want what you've got to sell at that point in time. Yeah. But uh, but. That's the harsh reality of life. Like some, some people will fail, and you can't yeah. get rid of that because that's how the market works. Yeah, and like it's not a human right to be a ski instructor. No, it's not a human no. right to be a doctor no. or anything. And you know, no. there's two two words there: is ski. Mm. So you got to be able to ski mm. and instruct. You got to be able to teach. Absolutely. And, uh, you got to be able to do that all the time. Mm. Uh, but and I I used to come in. To when Tom and I started into the coaching with that kind of harsh attitude, mm. and I could just like it's not that hard. You do this, and then that, like the ski does that. Like just yeah, yeah. just do that now. I can do it. Uh, like, Tom can do it. Just do it. And I'm like, oh, yes. Please. I'm going to tuck into a little muffin here. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just because they're there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah th- no, I'm all right. But sure. she did make them for you. So, yeah, no. uh, it's just. Take note, future future guests. <laughs> yeah, have a John have has a provided part- me with muffins. Have a partner that cooks yeah, Dave yeah. muffins. <laughs> yeah, I hope they're good. Uh, so you've softened that off a little bit. A lot. Say. Yeah. A lot in the coaching, because uh, and I get so much better results mm. with more being more supportive. I will still be honest, but not in a harsh way. Yeah, yeah. And not really with a shit sandwich mm-hmm. either. Like it's honest, but in a supportive way rather than first a lie, then a truth, and then a lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't believe in that at all. And it's just words for the sake of words. But um, 
it is, you know, it's just different cultures. The British are a little bit more round and about in how they address things, particularly like things that are not positive. They have to be wrapped around uh, in, in, in bubble wrap before you can provide it. I remember the first time I, when I was yeah. a lawyer, I did a deal with a, with a UK law firm. I can't remember which one, yeah. one of the Golden Circle ones. <laughs> and, you know, you're stressed. I was working so many hours a week. Incredible. Um, and this guy calls from London and he's super polite and he's using all these super advanced words and blah 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 for half an hour and then I realized because we had sent over like bullet points for how the deal should like the key features of the deal and there was this one aspect he called about that they were going to say no to but he just didn't he didn't have it in him to say no so after half an hour I realized okay he's actually okay so he wants to say no. Yeah. So I asked him straight out. So after all of that, what you're trying to say is that you're saying no. And then he could say yes. George. I got so angry. <laughs> just thanks for wasting my time. And I slammed the phone down and sent him an angry email to follow up. It drives my wife could, mad. Could, this this yeah, habit yeah, yeah. we have, uh, we British people have of not talking about the actual thing we talk around it we have all these phrases and things mm. that we use not to say the thing that we actually mean yeah you can't even say that how are you doing you can't even say good no you have to say not too bad not too bad yeah <laughs> if you like but like, yeah, if, yeah. if you actually listen to the words not too bad that means it's bad but it's no there's, bad. there's like a code you can understand <laughs> I know. the code so yeah. in sweet are they quite direct in much more direct in so if someone wants to say something they'll just say it to your face and that's that yeah you can't uh, do that in England. At it's least, a small island. At least my generation, you know, I've been in Sweden for a long time now. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's softened, but uh, and it's you know I'm not against it softening, but I am also very comfortable with being honest mm. and um, being. This, you can be supportive even if you have a tough message. Mm. Yeah. 